The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. I'm going to review very quickly. Uh, we, I, you know, I, uh, what we're talking about, I call it replacement. No, I reject that. But reinforcement, is there in a sense in which we, as part of God's program, this remarkable organism called the church, are we in fact uh, sort of called in alongside for a season to accomplish God's purpose? Absolutely. And I said just uh, real quickly yesterday, I said that replacement theology, just by way of definition, replacement theology is the notion that uh, Israel has been set aside permanently by reason of her rejection of Messiah, and uh, God has abandoned his covenant promises or redefined in such a way as to abandon and, uh, and, and made the church the recipient of his covenant relationship and promises, and uh, uh, in, 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 in so doing has superseded, the church has superseded or replaced Israel. Uh, I, I gave you some examples of it, I won't read it again. And I said that uh, the, the, the primary defense, historically, as I say, it was pretty much just a matter of official church dogma, and it wasn't challenged, but uh, today... There is a hermeneutical argument, and basically it is that, A, the New Testament must interpret the Old, which sounds somehow noble, but is horribly, horribly dangerous and wrong-headed. And, uh, uh, but the next step in the argument is that the New Testament uses some language of the church, which in the Old Testament is applied to Israel, and therefore given the working principle that the New Testament has the capacity to unsay and redefine the message of the Old Testament, that God does sometimes come along and say, never mind, you know what I'm saying? I, that's not what I meant, even though that's what I said. Uh, well, then the, the conclusion is that the church, uh, because this language, which in the Old Testament is so definitional of Israel, is used of the church, therefore the, the, the church has replaced Israel. That's almost the entire argument. And, uh, uh, and the passage we talked about yesterday is 1 Peter 2, where this definitional language... Now, there are others, and I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. Somebody mentioned the Galatians 6 passage, that uh, the, true, the Israel of God and so on. About which, so there are other passages to which people have gone. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But this one is instructive in that, here, here's, here's my primary concern, and, and I've got to get there quickly. But the fact is that clearly 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 is written to us and has tremendously important message for us. And I, and I think that because it's used as a, as a, as a uh, uh, I think, eisegetical key to a conclusion which is horribly dangerous because we kind of focus on this issue of whether or not that passage is telling us that the church has replaced Israel, we tend to perhaps to miss the message. It's, an, it's, it's a hugely important message. Well, let me go further uh, this morning, and, and I'd like to, uh, uh, again, uh, critique this argument out of 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, Two things let me say by way of introduction. I've got to be very quick. Number one, folks, it is so, I think, in an Isaiah 14 way. You know what I'm saying? 
uh, in, in, at the level of the fact that we are all fallen, and the essence of fallenness is selfishness, and, and, and the impulse of the fallen uh, soul spirit is to put oneself at the center of the universe. You know, I will be like the most high, and so on. There's a Luciferian dynamic there in, in I think, that, that's inbred to each one of us, even twice born. But anyway, my point is, it is so seductive and attractive and almost sometimes intuitive for people to regard God's program in human history as fundamentally and most importantly about salvation, about God getting men saved. And I think it is so important to recalibrate your mind again and again and come to grips with the reality that human history is not about God getting men saved, it is about God accomplishing his own glory. Now, that's almost motherhood and apple pie to say, but I'm telling you, it's easy to functionally forget that that's what human history is all about. Now, I say that because the other thing that, that's at stake here is that in the grand debate, and I shouldn't get started, but in the grand debate, between uh, replacement theology, amillennialism, covenant theology, that whole matrix of ideas, and premillennialism, hermeneutical literalism, uh, pr uh, 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 dispensationalism, so on, that whole matrix of ideas. In that grand debate, it has often been reduced, and I'm not happy with this uh, construct, but it has often been reduced to the issue of continuity versus discontinuity. Are you familiar with this at all? The, the covenant theologian, amillennialist, replacement theology, wants, the Bible, wants to emphasize continuity. So you have this idea of the covenants that, that, that are entirely man-made. Uh, all right, now I, see, I started down this road. There are biblical covenants in the Bible, which are hugely, unmistakably important to an understanding of what God's doing. But there is a system of thought covenant, called covenant theology, which has nothing to do with those biblical covenants. Covenants, as a matter of fact, which is embarrassed by those covenants, has to explain them away, but makes up its own set of covenants. And primary to that is the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption is taken to be the most important, uh, that, that all of human history, all of sacred history, must be regarded as the outworking of the one covenant of redemption. And so there is this passion for continuity. And out of that passion comes, for instance, the argument for uh, Israel, being replaced by the church. Because there's only one covenant, and there can only be one covenant people, so there can't be a distinction between Israel and the church because everything's got to be understood in terms of this one unfolding. That makes sense to you, honest to goodness? This, and that's what they mean by continuity. That's the big argument for infant baptism, quite frankly, because you got one unfolding covenant of redemption. Supposedly, the... the, the, the the, uh, the seal of that in the Old Testament was circumcision, so it must be baptism in the New Testament. Circumcision was applied to infants. Baptism ought to be applied. It's this passion for continuity. And historically, and maybe again, it's not the best construct, but historically, uh, we dispensationalists have said, no, no, we think there is significant discontinuity. That is, God does in fact work with Israel and then set Israel aside and raise up the church. And there are many ways in which the, the, God's program for the church are distinct. There's one plan of salvation and, and men have come to God savingly in the same way from Adam on, but there are, there are by the same point, point there, are, there, there are points of discontinuity. Now, I didn't mean to get in that too far, forgive me. 
My point is simply this, though, honest to goodness, that there is this, this kind of intuitive notion that whatever God is doing today, we ought to be able to pretty much extrapolate back to, it, to, to, to the Garden of Eden. That's just the way he works. And the fact of the matter is, it, it, it really, it won't work. And my point is, in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, as we said before, God says that he is going to make of Israel, which has by that time, for some 700 years or so, been a people, right? Abraham is called in, uh, in, in, in uh, oh, now it's gone from me, 21, he's born in 2166, so... So, you know, this is 1446, this is Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God is making of a people, making that people into a nation. What do you got to have to have a nation? Not just a lot of people, right? You got to have some government structure, you got to have somebody in charge, frankly, you got to have a a geographical habitation and so on, that's going to come next under Joshua, but that's what's going on. So, Israel is being, the, 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 the people of Israel is being made into the nation of Israel. And at that point, God, King Yahweh, well, God on, on Mount Sinai there, offers them a relationship by, by which he will be their king. And I, when I say that, by the way, again, immediately, I think our minds get a little abstract and, oh, that's a wonderful thing. I'm talking, there's nothing abstract about this. From 1446 to 592 B.C., God was king in Israel. It was a theocracy of the highest order. He had a throne. It was called the, Holy, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. He lived on that throne. You could approach him. You could appeal to the king personally. With the, that's what the vote of offering was all about. That's what Hannah does and so on. So, so God makes himself king. He offers a covenant by which he would make himself king. And, and he says that in so doing, he is doing it in order that he might make of Israel a kingdom with a priestly function. That little phrase, kingdom of priests, there is bottomless theology in that. And what it means is not everybody in the, in the land gets to be a priest, for heaven's sakes. We certainly know better than that. What he means is, I will make of you a kingdom with a priestly function. Now, in order to do that, remember these two phrases in Exodus 19.6? Uh, I'll make you a kingdom of priests and a holy, a set-apart nation. Now, how did God use Israel? What did God do? What was the strategy? And that's what I want you to want to talk about, because in the Old Testament, in that era, there was clearly in the Scripture a strategy which is, quite frankly, very foreign to us. Very, it, it's not going to work very well for us. And um, I have a series of lectures that I use, and I've used it here, but I'm going to give you four of seven concepts that I like to use. And I call it seven concepts that, that I think help us understand what God was doing for and through Israel in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through this lickety split, and don't even worry about it. I, it just... The impression, I think, will work. Uh, that is, it'll impress yourself, itself on you if you don't remember all of the details. But very simply, and, and, and let me tell you why I'm doing this. I deliberated whether to do this. The point is that what God is doing in the Old Testament in and through Israel is very, very distinct from the way he is working today. And to say simply that that that. In the Old Testament, God was ministering through Israel. In the New Testament, God is ministering, through, or the, the church's New Testament Israel, just is, is a terribly superficial and facile way 
to handle the Old Testament. It won't work. Now, let me go through it quickly and see if this helps. So I'm going to give you four of seven concepts. And the first one is what I call the intent and importance of Israel's influence. And very simply, the point is this, that in choosing Israel, and I keep saying, I said this to you yesterday, and you're familiar with it, that we are well into Old Testament history over halfway through the Old Testament in, period of, in point of time by the time God chooses Abraham. Genesis 12 is over halfway into human history. So there's a lot of human history. You know, it's, it's a strange thing. Covenant theology makes the Abrahamic covenant the beginning point almost of God's work of salvation. I think, wait a minute, there, you know, there are... Uh, about th- there are a lot of centuries of human history where people were, you know, would have appreciated a plan of salvation. I think so. So, but the point is, my point is that in Genesis one to eleven, you have a lot of human history, four thousand to twenty one hundred. You got about nineteen hundred years of hi- years of human history at the very least, and that record, Genesis one to eleven. Remember, it's Genesis twelve that God calls Abraham. So Genesis one to eleven is a record of unbroken rebellion. And so I think it is sort of intuitive, and it's a horribly, horribly witless mistake to, to come to this conclusion, but I think it's almost intuitive to think, well, maybe because in Genesis 1 to 11, you have the, the creation, then the fall, and then the overspreading of the earth, and then the flood, and then the Tower of Babel, and mankind had proven himself so intractably uh, rebellious, maybe God was just giving up on the human race and trying to deal with this one family, and that a lot of people have that notion. And my point is that in choosing God, uh, in choosing Abraham, God was not abandoning the world. He was coming up with a remarkably effective uh, means of putting himself on display. Now, folks, time out. This happens to begin with in Genesis 12. But the promise and the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his offspring in, in, in Genesis 12 is a unilateral eternal covenant because throughout eternity, this is going to be God's one covenant people. And they weren't chosen because they were so special or because they, they were better than anybody else. Or I, I read a book years ago by a man, and he's, a, he's, a, he's an important, competent Old Testament scholar, but he was, he, was, he was not thinking straight at this point. And he suggested that perhaps the reason that God chose Israel because he knew that they had some sort of genetic predisposition to monotheism. I'm thinking, have you read the Old Testament for heaven's sakes? This is not their genetic predisposition. But God didn't choose Israel because Israel deserved to be chosen for heaven's sakes. But he chose Israel because his grand design is to put himself on display to the world. And the mechanism by which he, in in perfect wisdom and grace, determined to do that was pick this one very unworthy people who would, would prove themselves beyond any shadow of a doubt to be horribly unworthy. And then when he drew him to himself, uh, drew them to himself, that would be the, 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 the means by which he would display his covenant-keeping faithfulness and his, absolute, his, his bottomless grace. That makes sense to you. So he chooses Israel not because he's, he's rejecting the rest of the world. The intent and importance of Israel's influence was that they would be a light. Now, the second concept, real quickly is what I call the, uh, the principle of providential placement. And this is geography, forgive me here, but uh, I don't work here if anywhere, but I'm going to go through this so quickly. You know that in the ancient world, in the very ancient world, and I always say I'm not talking about 
real hairy men staggering out of a cave, you know, knocking little rocks together to try and get fire. This is the, these are the three sons of Noah descending from the ark, finding an ecology very different from what they had known, and being dispatched to overspread the world with culture which would honor God. And as they do, the grand centers of, of culture are two, namely Egypt and Mesopotamia because of the rivers. And there is, this is where culture begins to spring up and where it becomes, stays strong. And the point is that there's only one route between these two centers of culture, and that is the Fertile Crescent. Remember the Fertile Crescent here? You have uh, mountains to the north and the Arabian Desert to the south, and here's Mesopotamia, and here's, uh, here's Egypt down here, and the only route between the two is what we call the Fertile Crescent, a sickle of, of, of land which is uh, uh, tra- you can travel, uh, cultivate, and settle, and which is surrounded on all sides by territory where none of that's possible. So you have this very important concept that everybody acknowledges in the ancient world called the, the Fertile Crescent. Now here's the point, and I always tell people, the one little tiny factoid, which I can tell you about geography, which is more important than any other little tiny factoid, is this right here. If you want to understand the Old Testament and how it is that God for so many centuries contrived to keep this little tiny land with no uh, natural defenses and no natural resources to speak of and so on, how is it that this one little tiny slip of land, uh, 120 miles north to south and 40 to 80 miles east to west, this little tiny land has been the most important little slip of land in the whole world. And here it is. There's one little, and that is quite simply that uh, Israel is the really the only narrow spot on the Fertile Crescent. Now, as you know, you're not, your heart is not welling up with you inside of you, and you're not crying amen and amen. <laughs> it's not, but it's important, I'm telling you. Understand that the one narrow spot on the most important international highway in the ancient world was the little tiny land of Israel. And this is not a mistake. This is the providence, uh, this is what I call the principle of providential placement. As a matter of fact, to go further, you have, and most of you know this, you have there in Israel this remarkable, the most important valley on the face of the earth called the Valley of Jezreel. 36 history-shaping uh, battles have been fought on that one valley in the history of the mankind, and it's for exactly this reason. This is the grand bottleneck. It's interesting that, uh, well, I won't go any further with it. Here are the international highways. I've just penciled them in. This is basically the international highway King's Highway over here, not as important by the time we get uh, even beyond the patriarchs, but this is the big one, the Via Maris right here. And if you, all right, so you're starting out over there in Mesopotamia. You've made your way across the Crescent. You come to Damascus. You're making your way down from Damascus. You are going to make your way into that valley because this is where you want to get. The coastal plain is the only really passable highway along here. And interestingly enough, there's this this valley that you're going to have to come into. You might come north of the Sea of Galilee and down through the Horns of Hatim. You might come south and up the Herod Valley. You're going to make your way to this valley. All of the mountains in Israel, this is no mistake, I mean, this is, this is divine, this is carefully planned. All the mountains in Israel are on a north-south axis, except for this one strange mountain, which is Mount Carmel, which is right across the International Highway, and there are three passes. And if you, see, and by the way, they are Yoknium, where the bus goes today. If you go to Israel today, you go through Yoknium. Uh, it was a little used in the ancient world. And then to the south is Dothan. And then the central pass and the most important passage, the one you'd choose if you had a choice, is Megiddo. 
And, of course, you know that uh, it's called Megiddo because there's a little city that, that guards it on the north called Megiddo, the little village of Megiddo. And that little village sits on a hill, and the Aramaic word for hill is Har, so it comes to in the Bible as Har Megiddo or Armageddon. And there's a battle to be fought there in, in, in days to come. And it's for exactly that same Antichrist, I think, is going to muster his forces in this valley, and then they're going to make their way through that, that little pass and to, 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 to attack God's people in Israel. But the point is, in Jerusalem, the point is that this, watch this now. I've, I've bored you to death here, but here's the thing. There's one narrow spot on the, on, on the international highway in the ancient world, and it is Israel, and so all the traffic of the world, and the reason is, it, 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 what happens there is so important is, the reason every nation wants to control this little tiny land is because if you control those three passes, you control most of the traffic in the international highway in the ancient world. And I'm talking commercial and military traffic. If you want to move a caravan or an army, you're going to pass through this way. And when you do, look, when you go to Israel, you talk about King Herod. Remember Herod the Great about as much as anybody else because he was such a builder and he left his fingerprint all over the land. You know why? Because he was given control of this area by Rome right at the time when, 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 when Pax Romana, when trade was expanding and so on or exploding and you had all of this traffic. And uh, he, if he controls this land, he can put a toll on all of those caravans. See the point? And all of that merchandise passing through there, he can control. And you can't overstate how important this is. Now, what's that got to do with anything? The fact is, and this is the big point, this is my tenemois, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, my point is that because of the way God shaped the earth, all the nations of the world were making their way through this little tiny land. And, 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 and you know what? In the ancient world, men were hungry. As a matter of fact, this is my point. I'll just say it. Uh, I, it's such a... <laughs> It's, it's not intuitive to us. You have to think about it. But in fact, Israel was never, ever given a commission to go to the world. They were to stay in that land. But God didn't expect them to go. God brought the world to Israel. And in the ancient world, the way news, people were hungry for news and what was going on. But the only, you know, I always think it wasn't very many generations ago, really, when the fastest you could get a message from here to there was to take, have a person go from here to there. And the way messages were carried, the news of the world was carried to the farthest points of the world were these heralds, these men who just uh, would, would, would attach themselves to caravans. And, and wherever that caravan went, these men who were bringing the news of the world, they didn't have anything to sell, they didn't have anything to trade, they, just, they had stories to tell about this battle or this coup. Or, and and uh, 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 everywhere they, the, the caravan went, they were given the finest rooms and the finest homes and fated because people wanted to hear the news of the day. Now think about it, folks. There is a God in Israel who is a living God. He actually can do things, and he does things on behalf of his people. And the world is given over to these gods of their own making who have no eyes to see and no ears to hear. And so here you have these, these caravans making their way through this land, which is governed by a god who, who, who can come to the rescue of his people. My point is, those stories, the message of that god was carried to the furthest point in the world by means of, by, as a result of that little tiny geographic Reality. Does that make sense to you? 
Honest to goodness, it's, it's huge. And, 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 and by the way, let me take you another step here. The third, I got to hurry. The third principle is what I call the dynamics of distinctive divisions here. And, and, and what I mean by that, here's a lesson, a short course in Israel geography. But uh, the concept is simply this, that the land of Israel is very, very small. And yet it is marked by these remarkably distinct divisions and everybody notices this it's so it's so remarkable little tiny land and yet hugely uh, different distinct uh, areas now watch here they are and this is very quickly first of all you have uh, the coastal plains which is just that here's I, I, I threw in a picture actually this is Jezreel Valley but the Jezreel Valley is an extension of the coastal plains it's exactly what you would think flat and uh, quite open quite passable and then beyond that you have the Shvela which is not all that important for our purposes right now. It's hugely important to the Bible. But this is an area of these rolling hills. This is the buffer zone. If you're going to attack Jerusalem, you have to conquer this. And so if you're going to fortify Jerusalem, you're going to fortify this re- region. This is why it's so important in, in the scriptures and so on. But watch this. Then in the interior of the country, there is this, this area called the Central Hill Country. It's steep valleys, it's terraced hillsides, very closed. Geographers speak of a closed area. It means you can't put a, it's very hard to find a place to put a road. An open area, you can put a road most anywhere. But this is hugely closed. And furthermore, it's hard to get up into the hill country. And once you get up there, you just got to come back down again because it doesn't take you anywhere. All right, now, I'm going to come back to that. You have this central hill country where where Jerusalem sits atop that central hill country. Here's a uh, representation. This is uh, the hills right outside of Jerusalem. Then, of course, you have one of the most phenomenal uh, uh, sites. uh, uh, Menno made several references to this yesterday, uh, the Jordan Rift. This is the deepest fault line in the face of the earth. Uh, The Sea of Galilee here at the north of the rift is 600 feet below sea level. And uh, then the Jordan River drops down here to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level on its surface, and it's 1,200 feet deep. So this is a gash in the face of the earth, and it dominates the culture and so on. Of, I'm sorry, not the culture, the, the climate of this part of the world. But again, it's hugely impassable. You don't want to go through here if you don't have to. You have to drop way down into that thing. You have to climb back out. You remember, Jericho is the lowest city on the face of the earth, and uh, Jericho is only about 15 miles from Jerusalem. But when you leave Jericho and make your way up to Jerusalem, you start out about 1,200 feet below sea level, and you're going to cross the backside of the Mount of Olives, and that's 2,700 feet above sea level and about 15 miles. Remember, Jesus talked about a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're flat going down. Let me just tell you something about it. So you don't want to take that trip if you don't have to. All right, so, and then of course beyond that is, uh, it's not too, this is Masada in the distance, but this is the wilderness and the, the rift, and then beyond that is the Jordanian plateau, the tra- Transjordanian. Now, here's my point. Uh, God said, I am going to make of you a kingdom with a priestly function. I'm going to put myself on display to the world by means of this people. And his, his intent was that they would live in the land and honor him and that the stories would be carried to the furthermost pouch of the world, which is exactly, we know very well, this is exactly what happened. But in order for them to be a kingdom with a priestly function, he had, they had to be a holy, a set-apart nation. 
So he shaped this little tiny land, this little tiny slip of land, in such a way that even though you had the international highways on the other, on the, on the other side, you, and, and I always say it's like living on the median of the I-95, you know what I'm saying? Because you got the traffic tearing by, but you're up here in the hills, the armies don't want to come up here. Now, when, they, if, when, when you get to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, you want to conquer it and so on, then they're going to come up to battle. But in the normal course of things, Israel, everybody acknowledges that, that Israel is one of the remarkable things about this little tiny land is, it, 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 is that it is at once so private and so public. On the one hand, you've got all the traffic of the world traveling through here. On the other hand, Israel lives up in the mountain where nobody wants to go, and, and they can be quite secure and honor their God up there and so on. So my point is that this is... this Now, one other thing here real quickly, and I'll just say this and then we're done. Um, I call it the wisdom and will of God concerning the worship and walk of Israel. Oh, don't get me started. But what I'm talking about here is the law. And it's, it's, it's astounding to me, quite frankly, that we today have developed kind of almost a cynical attitude toward this remarkable set of statutes which God gave, a perfectly wise God gave, and so on. I won't develop it at all, but let me just say this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says, concerning Moses says, concerning the law, he says, you be careful to do what is written in the law, because this is your wisdom in the sight of the nations. And the nations will say, what nation is there? that has a God so nigh, this is Deuteronomy 4, that has a law so wise. Now, if they honored that law, it would transform them as a people. And, and, and so here's the point. God's purpose for Israel in the Old Testament was that they, as a people, now get this, and I, I, I deal with it here in a minute, right here. God's purpose was that they, as a people, would live obedient to him. And to be honest with you, uh, look, God said, I set before you a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey and a curse if you disobey. To the degree that they obeyed, God could put on display his remarkable love and care and power in their behalf. To the degree that they chose to disobey, God could put on display another character, uh, another aspect of his character, and that is his holiness and his justice and his wrath. Either way, God was going to extract his glory from this people. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 11, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Both of those elements of God's character are, are essential that we understand. And so God put Israel, and here's the grand distinction that is so often misunderstood. Israel's role was played as a people nation. And it was, it was going to be effective regardless of how many individual Israelites had come to saving faith. Does that make sense to you? It really was not a function of their spirituality. Because God was going to put himself on display in the course of their history. And he put them at a place in, 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 the, in the world. He shaped the world in such a way that all the peoples of the world were going to hear about the way he dealt with them. And then he shaped the land in such a way that they could live remarkably secure and, and, and in spite of the fact that they were oftentimes subjected by foreign powers, they could have their own life up there, they could live onto themselves, they could be a set-apart people. And, and so my point is, when God says in Exodus 19 that I am going to make of you a kingdom with a priestly function, a nation with a priestly function, and, and, and a holy nation... 
a holy people, a set-apart nation, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation is the terminology. Uh, it is a remarkably succinct description of this strategy which he employed throughout the Old Testament by which largely through geography and culture and so on, God put himself... See, in the ancient world, here, watch this, in the ancient world, every people, the rest of the world were monotheists, and so you could have as many gods as you want, but every nation had its own god or set of gods, its own tribal deities, its, its, its own pantheon of gods and so on. And, and your national identity was as much as anything else a function of loyalty to that god. And so to be a Babylonian was to serve Bel. Does that make sense to you? But here is this people whose God is Yahweh, and the whole world knows this. And Yahweh proves himself powerful again and again on behalf of those people. And that becomes a testimony to the world of the power and the majesty of this God. And then God deals carefully and judicially with those people, Israel, when they do wickedly. And so that, that becomes a testimony to the world that there is a God who will not tolerate wickedness. And all across the world, and I think we can know from a biblical perspective that this was the work of the Spirit, but there were men and women who abandoned their gods and, and abandoned their people because they were attracted to this remarkable God, Yahweh. Does that make sense to you? Now, what's the parallel between that and the way God is working today? See, it's, it's almost nothing. To say that they were simply the Old Testament church and now we're New Testament Israel, <laughs> the, the parallel is, is so inexact to suggest that there's continuity there. Now I think, I don't want to get any further, but now let me, let me finish it. Uh, the New Testament reference, go to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, and see if I can make any sense of this. 1 Peter 2, this is the passage which is appealed to to make the argument that that uh, Israel has been replaced. And as I said to you, sort of in anticipation last yesterday, I, I, that's a horrible misuse of the passage, but what is the passage telling us? Peter is writing to local churches, actually. He's writing to churches. He had been very pivotal. We don't know. The book of Acts, you know, turns, the spotlight turns to Paul, and we don't trace Peter's ministry here in uh, Northern Asia Minor over much, but clearly... That's where he's been ministering, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1, that's where he addresses this epistle. But he says to these people in verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, the interesting thing about that is the word royal is sort of a translator's way to avoid the word basilus. It means a kingdom. So Peter is saying, well, what Peter says is you are a kingdom of priests. But we're not a kingdom. There's no sense in which the church, either universal or local, can be construed as any sort of a kingdom, right? And we certainly aren't a people. There are not, we're not ethnically bound. We're not, uh, uh, there's no familial bond, if you don't mind. So what is Peter doing? He's picking up the language of Exodus 19 very deliberately to say simply this, that the role that Israel played in the Old Testament the church plays today that we, the church, churches, I think is the most important way to take this, are God's way in this day of put the, the, the means by which God has chosen to put himself on display to the world. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't mean that we have permanently replaced Israel, but it is a truth that given Israel's 
rebellion, which is not <laughs> it, Israel's rebellion, Israel's hardness, as blinding as it seems to us, is in fact pivotal to God's plan to glorify himself. Because God's grace can only be appreciated against the backdrop of man's rebellion. And so one of the things that breaks my heart most thoroughly about amillennialism covenant theology is this notion that by reason of Israel's rebellion, God abandoned her and sought out a people who would be more receptive to his goodness. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, we aren't receptive to his goodness. And, 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 and Israel's rebellion and this period of hardness is going to, I believe, throughout eternity be central to, the realist, to, to our ever-increasing appreciation for the infinity of God's grace. That makes sense to you? And, and, and so where I'm taking you is simply this, and, and that's why I say uh, that Israel has been set aside. The setting aside is judicial. It's a, God had to do it by reason of his covenant character, and, and it's temporary, and we have been raised up. But I go back to, uh, I go back to my, my original simple thesis. Uh, have we replaced Israel? Absolutely not. But in the perfect plan of God, has he raised you and me up, local churches, believers across the world, to play that role? And, and our, our, our commission is very different. We are commissioned to go, and we are to plant churches throughout the world and bear that testimony throughout the world. It's very, very distinct. But at this one key point, the similarity is unmistakable, and instructive. And that is that as in the Old Testament, a people called Israel was the primary strategy by which God was going to put himself. They were a kingdom of priests and therefore had to be a holy nation. So today, the primary strategy is the church and we need to be a set-apart people and that's why Peter picks up on that figure. Does that make sense to you? So amen and amen that we are, that is our stewardship, that is our commission. We do play that role, and it's a serious thing. Let me say this, and then I'm done. <laughs> I always say it's the Tevya reality. Remember, remember Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof, where he's, he says, you know, maybe, God, you could have picked somebody else. The fact of the matter is, it's not an easy thing to be the one nation on earth with whom God has chosen to make a covenant relationship. And even in rebellion, even in disbelief, the Jewish people, bless their heart, can never escape this reality that they represent Yahweh on this earth, even in unbelief, as a people. And it's not an easy thing. And it's for that reason that we ought to be so grateful for these people whom God has chosen. And they have really remarkably and nobly played that role, even, even out of a heart of disbelief in so many, in so many instances. But by the same token... It's not an easy thing for you and me to bear the name of Christ in an unbelieving world. And we need to be a people set apart and distinct from the world. Amen and amen. amen. Father in heaven, again, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. Thank you, Father, uh, haltingly and because we are at once both finite and fallen, we, 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 we acknowledge that uh, we only haltingly 
understand even this wonderful word, but Father, as we go to the pages of Scripture, we can discern something of your remarkable grace and your remarkable wisdom in framing human history in such a way as to put your glory on display. We honor you as the God who, by reason of who you are and by reason of the fact that you are our maker, you deserve. It is infinitely appropriate that you be honored and glorified and worshipped and magnified. And then, Father, we worship you because you have made yourself savingly known to us and drawn us to yourself and given us life in your Son. And now, Father, we cherish the day when your name will be honored on this earth. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.